Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund, the Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, and by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broatmarkle, and coming up on the program, Anne Browning Masters, author of the book Floridanos, Menorcans, Cattle Whip Crackers, Poetry of St. Augustine. The local language, the vernacular, is poetic. And when I hear this speech, it, for me, I hear the voices in, in speaking narrative poetry. We'll discuss glass plate negatives taken by tin can tourists in the early 20th century. These tin can tourists could take hundreds of photographs using these glass plates. They would stow them away. They could then bring it back home, process all these photographs, and have all of these memories captured. And we'll explore wooden Gothic churches. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. Yes, I did leave Eugenia and Panchita in the kitchen to bluff-hungry union boys, and I rode like a woman fool to the river, to the Johnny soldiers who launched my boat and all their stories. This was all we knew, spy parley, flight. Young women don't picture being hanged when their boys rename a beaten-down Yankee bark three sisters, they smile, they curtsy. They think they ride a history, but it does not step where they thought. History could join up again, like creek branches, Papa said. The old Floridano, after all, had married my Menrican and Mama. Then they watched a herd of wars dance like wild-eyed horses across the peninsula. That's Anne Browning Masters reciting a poem about Lola Sanchez, one of three sisters from St. Augustine who entertained Union soldiers during the Civil War so they could gather intelligence for the Confederate Army. Masters is related to Lola Sanchez, and the poem appears in the new book Floridanos, Menorcans, Cattle Whip Crackers, Poetry of St. Augustine. Anne Browning Masters is a native of St. Augustine and a 12th generation Floridian. In St. Augustine on my mother's side, her family records that are first there in the records with the Catholic Church are in 1602, when Elena Gonzalez married Diego Alvarez. And for almost 100 years, her daughters, granddaughters, continued to marry men who came to St. Augustine. They stayed there. and. Then in 1702 or 1704, Juana Perez, one of those great-granddaughters, married Jose Sanchez de Ortigosa. And so my family line maternally goes with the Sanchez family. My mother's maiden name is Sanchez. So that's what we call Floridano. And the Floridanos are descendants of the Spanish settlers. The paternal side for me is the Menorcan side. And those are the Mediterranean indentured servants who came to St. Augustine in 1777. 
They had actually come in 17, earlier in 1768 to a plantation in New Smyrna, and the plantation failed for various reasons. And amazingly, the British governor gave them relief and allowed them to come to St. Augustine. This was during the British period, and the Floridanos had, had gone to Spanish colonies or back to Spain. Uh, after that 20-year British period, the Floridanos returned, some of them, and they began to marry the Menorcans. So that is where, obviously, in my mother's Floridano side, they married some Menorcans. So for me, it's a, a blending of those two cultures. Floridanos, then, are descendants of Florida's first Spanish period settlers. The first Spanish period ended in 1763 when the British took control of Florida for 20 years. During that period, Andrew Turnbull brought indentured servants to Florida to settle New Smyrna. The term Menorcan is used to describe these people and their descendants, although not all of them were from the island of Menorca. And Browning Masters. Menorcans are the indentured servants who came to work in Florida. They are of Italian, Greek, and Menorcan descent. Menorca is one of the Balearic Islands southeast from Barcelona. And at the time, Menorca was under control of Britain. So it made sense that a British landowner would recruit indentured servants from this Spanish, basically, island of Menorca. Menorca as an island has had everybody and their brother at one time running the show. And so they are very comfortable with the, the English particularly, so much so that one of their highways, the main and only highway through the center of the island, is named for one of the British governors who was there a good while back. So that's the, the imprint of Britain on, on that particular island. It's a popular myth in St. Augustine that hot daddle peppers arrived in the area when Menorcan settlers brought them here. Extensive research and three trips to Menorca have convinced Anne Browning Masters that the legend is just not true. What is a fact is that Menorcans in St. Augustine have been cooking with daddle peppers for many generations, as Masters explains in her poem, The St. Augustine Menorcan Litmus Test. Did we bring daddle peppers from Menorca? Did we bring daddle peppers from New Smyrna? Did we find daddle peppers locked in the fort? None of this matters unless you are Menorcan. The St. Augustine Menorcan litmus test begins with the green and orange beauties that you grow in five gallon pickle buckets. Unless your parents or in-laws give you a handful. Put gloves on your Mediterranean hands, for you are about to slice hellfire, cousin, from a two-inch pepper guaranteed to burn you up alive with those innocent white seeds. Throw those seeds away and chop up that pepper Sprinkle that flaming dice on some fine perlo. And if you don't have perlo, use beans and rice. And if you don't have beans and rice, are you Menorcan? But I digress. Now take a bite. Eat it all. Can you still talk? 
Do you want the garden hose? If you like what you ate, if you would eat more, we will then call you a good Menorcan. The third group named in the title of Anne Browning Masters' poetry collection and the third part of her ancestry are cattle whip crackers. The origin of the word cracker probably goes back to the William Shakespeare play The Life and Death of King John. In Act Two, scene one of that play, the Duke of Austria says, What cracker is this same that defs our ears with this abundance of superfluous breath? The Duke was speaking of talkative Scotch-Irish people whose descendants eventually made their way to Florida, bringing the term cracker with them. There are so many origins for the word. When we go back to the, the Scotch-Irish, the Craig, you know, when you have the talk at the pub and a good time. Um, in America, the corn crackers, that's another derivation. Um, in this case, though, what I'm talking about are people who owned cows, had ranches. In the South, we would say they ran cows. And um, basically, growing up, that was my understanding of that term, although it probably at the same time it did have the pejorative term of a racist that it has now. But that's, a, that's another derivation or usage for that term. And, and in my book, I use that term mostly except for one poem where I do use the, the contemporary usage as, as a bigot. In her book, Floridano's Menorcan's Cattle Whip Crackers, Poetry of St. Augustine, Anne Browning Masters explores her personal heritage, but also addresses historical topics and perspectives. For me, the, the local language, the vernacular, is poetic. And when I hear this speech, it, for me, I hear the voices in, in speaking narrative poetry, basically. So that's why many of the poems are almost like monologues of characters telling their story. But that's poetry for me. Um, I've, in thinking about this interview, I was thinking about how do you explain that, that this would come out as poetry? And for some reason, I kept thinking of Laura Ingalls Wilder um, when the young child was going with a farmer and suddenly saw a cabbage patch, rows upon rows of cabbage, and she exclaimed, it's beautiful. And the farmer's going, cabbages? Cabbages are beautiful? <laughs> well, the farmer was very used to his cabbages every day, and he didn't see the beauty in that, uh, whereas the young woman did. And that's what I see in this language. I call it a raw beauty that tells the story of these folks. Anne Browning Masters hopes to preserve a language and a manner of speaking that is fading away. Creating her poetry has also provided an opportunity to preserve family history for future generations. The inspiration came many years ago from my probably 12-year-old son, which I've, is, that's mentioned in the book. Um, where we'd visited one evening in the 80s with my husband's grandparents. And as traditional in our culture, we gossiped and laughed and talked and had a great time. We did, my husband and I. And as we're getting in the car, our son looked at us and said, Do you realize you've talked about dead people for two hours? And so for me, that was the impetus to begin to, to capture that, although in truth I had begun to write some ideas, some of the poetry I had begun, but it 
really caught me up short that, wow, with my generation, this common knowledge will pass away. This spoken knowledge will, will not be around, especially if 12-year-olds are thinking we're just talking about dead people. So um, that was the beginning of, of capturing that work. And so I had to do what I call backwards research because, of course, we were legends in our own minds. And these stories, um, some of them just seemed unreasonably that there would be no way they could be true. And amazingly, some were. Some, not so much. But th that was part of the, the, the head stuff, not the heart stuff for writing the poems. So the, the um, St. Augustine Historical Society was very helpful in helping me to, to do a lot of the research, as well as to go back and item by item with microfish to document that I really was a descendant <laughs> of these folks. Because we had a genealogy, but even though I don't read archaic Spanish, one can see the church records and, and document that. And I was very concerned about that. So that was part of the intellectual process. Ann Browning Masters is author of the book Floridano's Menorcan's Cattle Whip Crackers, Poetry of St. Augustine. History wrote its own book without our name. Sweet mother, who remembers when this new world began to sliver change among us? I have children and children's children, and now they are called crackers for whips for American cattle, as if Spanish cows never left the boats. Listen, child, hold this tight. Grandpapa's abuelo fetched our first herd, taught us how to work them, passed down his heart. This is how we bore all the Floridas, bred and raised all the bloodlines, these Floridanos, these Menorcans, these cattle whip crackers. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Visit us on the web at myfloridahistory.org to find out about upcoming events, read our Florida Frontiers blog, listen to archived editions of this program, and much more. Join the Florida Historical Society to receive our journal, The Florida Historical Quarterly, and our newsletter, The Society Report. That's myfloridahistory.org. Ticket to anywhere, maybe we make a deal. Maybe together we can get somewhere. Any place is better. Starting from zero, got nothing to lose. Maybe we'll make something. Me, myself, I got nothing to prove. Joining us now is Ben DiBiase, Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. Ben, people have been vacationing in Florida since the 1800s, but tourism in the state really exploded with the creation of the automobile. 
Yeah, that's right. The automobile, this new technology, allowed a different class of American to travel down to、uh, the southernmost state, which was Florida at that time. And this was really targeted at kind of the、uh, lower middle class or lower middle income folks who、um, uh, really only had a few weeks to spend, but、uh, maybe had a family sedan,、uh, could travel down to Florida, but couldn't stay at, at many of the wealthier resorts. I mean, we're, we're all familiar with the、uh, large hotels, the, the Breakers in Palm Beach, and, and it, that was. Was really geared towards the uh, uh, the wealthiest of of people coming to Florida,、uh, but with the proliferation of the automobile and the building of thousands of miles of of new two lane highways throughout the interior of Florida,、um, a new industry essentially evolved. Uh, within the the period of a couple of decades, so by the 1920s,、uh, after the end of the First World War, there really was this explosion of road building, but also、uh, tourists who were spending their winter months、uh, escaping the cold, and this is kind of the beginning of that that、uh, trend, escaping the cold weather and traveling south into the interior.、Uh, and with this, we see the evolution in how、uh, Florida tourism、uh, really switched gears and, and kind of changed and began to cater、uh, to a, a different. A different class of Americans. Now, tourists today use their cell phones to document their vacations digitally, and before that, people used film and cameras. But the tin can tourists had a, a precursor to film. Yes, that's right. And we talked about the uh, new technology uh, that was emerging with the uh, uh, the automobile. So there were newer, faster,、uh, more efficient automobiles. But we also see、uh, the evolution of the camera and and camera techniques.、Uh, what we're looking at today is actually a collection called the Ernest Meyer、uh, Tin Can Tourist Photographic Collection, and it's comprised of about fifty. Uh, gelatin dry、uh, glass plate negatives, and a glass plate negative is exactly what it sounds like. It's a four-inch、uh, by five-inch glass plate, and you can see as I pull it out of the、uh, acid-free sleeve, when we hold it up to the light, we can actually see a reversed image that's been、uh, what looks like is is painted onto the actual glass,、um, and it's a, a light-sensitive material that when it's exposed in the camera,、um, anywhere the light hits, it tends to etch into that into that plate. The negative can then Be processed to create、uh, a positive or print、uh, that you might see today, or what most people are probably familiar with.、Uh, and this was really a, a really great leap forward, and, and it became very economical for、uh, folks to use this dry plate、uh, technology as opposed to the wet plate negative technology that was predominantly used in the late 19th century.、Uh, many people are probably familiar with the Civil War、uh, Carta Vistas and uh, uh, tin uh, tin types, but that was a, a wet plate technique that needed to be. Developed immediately, the dry plate、uh, technique could be. Uh, uh, securely fashioned in some kind of container and could be processed later. So these tin can tourists could take hundreds of photographs using these glass plates. They would stow them away、uh, in some kind of, in this case, actually it's a, a wooden crate. They could then bring it back home, process all these photographs, and have all of these memories captured、uh, in the negative form, but also in、uh, the form of contact prints. And with the Ernest Meyer collection,、uh, he and his sister began coming to Florida sometime around 1918. And the majority of the collection we have here. Covers from about 1921、uh, to 1924, and the subject matter varies、uh, quite a bit. There are,、uh, of course, a lot of photos of their car. It's a, a small Ford Model A,、uh, or Model T rather. And it looks like uh, uh, later on,、uh, towards 1924, 25, 
they started to retrofit their car with a type of tent, uh, almost like a lean-to that could easily be deployed so they could park anywhere on the side of a dirt road, camp out for the night. In fact, we even have a, a photograph here uh, of the um, of the couple eating. Uh, they set up a tent on top of the hood of their car. It looks like they're they're eating lunch while uh, the, the, the car is parked on the side of the road. But they also tried to take uh, some photographs of the local people, local areas of interest. Here we see a um, an image of a Seminole Indian village um, that was somewhere in, in South Dade County, right around 1921. Um, so again, the, the interest of a lot of these tourists varied quite a bit. Now, tin can tourists celebrated the individual freedom that cars allow, but as some of these images indicate, they also uh, congregated in groups as well. Well, that's right, and that was for a lot of reasons, um, one of which was economical. Um, it was still very expensive for a lot of these people to travel to Florida. So if you traveled in groups, uh, you could cook together, you could camp together. You had a, um, kind of a, a better chance if, if someone broke down, uh, you had kind of this uh, a group to, kind of, to, to help you out. And uh, sometime around 1920, the Tin Can Tourists of the World organization was formed, and they used to hold these, host rather, these annual meets, uh, one of which was actually in Arcadia, in in the early 1920s. And one of the other photographs that we have here, the glass plate actually that we're looking at, um, is a, uh, an open pit barbecue at one of these meets uh, in, uh, in right around 1920 and 1922. Um, but it just shows kind of the camaraderie that evolved over time. And we see that even today uh, with the uh, proliferation of recreational vehicles. People still travel from all over the world and, and all over the United States down to Florida to visit a lot of these sites. And at this time in the 1920s and 30s, there were uh, whole economies in these small towns that relied on the tin can tourists and the annual influx of uh, tourists down to Florida. Great. Well, thanks a lot, Ben. Sure. Thank you. Ben DiBiase is Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. I remember when we were driving, driving in your car, speed so fast, I felt like I was drunk, city lights day out before, and your arm felt nice wrapped around my shoulder, and I, I had a feeling that I belonged. You got a fast car Is it fast enough so you can fly away? You gotta make a decision Leave tonight or live and die this way This is Florida Frontiers. Beautiful wooden Gothic churches can be found in Florida. Robert Casanello from robertcasanello.com has more. Since this was a particularly popular style for rural people and rural communities, and since wood was available in Florida, and that's no, obviously no stone, they uh, began to build these little churches, uh, wooden churches, in the Gothic style. That was Dr. Jack Lane professor emeritus of history at Rollins College. He was speaking about the popularity of Gothic-style churches throughout Florida. Dr. Lane stumbled upon one of these churches while doing some other research in the early history of Rollins College. He tells us how this sparked an interest for further research into the popularity of this architectural style. 
When I was doing the history of Rollins, I found out that Rollins started its first classes at the Congregational Church here in Winter Park because the the classroom building had not been finished. And I saw a photograph of that and I thought, boy, that is really a beautiful little church. It had been torn down and wasn't here anymore. And then I said, well, I'd like to find out a little more about that. And what I found out was that at least 50 or 60 of those little churches were built throughout Florida, along the, particularly along the St. John's River Valley, in the late 19th century. And many of them are still in existence. And so I thought, this is too good not to do something about, because these are really just incredibly little artistic gems that are kind of hidden from sight. When we sat down with Dr. Lane, he told us why these churches are called Carpenter Gothic. The reason they're called Carpenter Gothic churches because the plans were so simple that local carpenters could build them very easily. And so when a local group got together, they would get the plans, and then the local people and the carpenters themselves would make adjustments to it in ways they wanted to do, in ways that met their needs. Dr. Lane told us about the characteristics these churches share and the features that might be distinct from church to church. It's wooden. The, there's a very steep-pitched roof, right? And the distinguishing feature of them, the most distinguishing feature, is its um, pointed windows, lancet windows, they're called. And they're almost always stained glass windows, too, which you can't see from the outside, but if you go inside with the light striking them, they're really beautiful. But every one of them has a little different aspect to it, a little different quality to it. It has something added here, something there. There's one up in Fruitland that was built by a group of English settlers that is very ornate on the outside. I think it's one of the most beautiful ones. And then the others, like the one at Enterprise, is just a simple little church. I mean, it just, they used as little material as they possibly could. They built it as simply as they possibly could in its structure and its symmetry. It's just gorgeous. Dr. Lane informed us that this style dates back hundreds of years and was ideal to communities on Florida's burgeoning 19th century frontier because each town could adapt the structure to fit its finances and resources. That Gothic style of architecture reaches deep back into the Christian religion and the origins of Christianity with the uh, famous Gothic churches in Europe. In the late 19th century, there was sort of a revival of this kind of architecture on the theory that, or the belief that, this was the most expressive architecture for Christian churches. And so it was Richard Upjohn who began to build in this style. He built a Trinity Church in in New York, was the architect of it, and then Little churches around the country love that style, and so they asked him to design churches for them. But he understood that um, they couldn't afford these brick churches, and many of them were in rural areas that had no stone or any such thing. So he, uh, he got the idea of designing these kinds of churches, the style of church, using wood, which was very original. And he designed some for these churches, and it caught on in the late 19th century. Although Richard Upjohn and others involved in popularizing this style of architecture had economics and availability of resources in mind, 
These were not the only factors that made Carpenter Gothic ubiquitous in Florida's small towns and rural places. Dr. Lane tells us another factor that made this specific style desirable to local parishes. In the belief of most uh, Protestant denominations of this period is that that style of architecture, as I mentioned, expressed more expressed Christian beliefs. But it was also the kind of building and church structure that would be very, very expressive uh, have, a, have a kind of beautiful style of architecture and at the same time would be affordable. These little towns couldn't afford very much else anyway. And many of the frontiers were building these kinds of churches, but they were just little square boxes, okay? And these churches, because, they're, because there were plans available for them, were really uh, uh, expressive little churches. So they, uh, they were drawn to it. That was Dr. Jack Lane, and I'm Robert Casanello with Florida Frontiers. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please join us right here again next week. Follow the daily conversation on Facebook at Florida Historical Society and visit us anytime on the web at myfloridahistory.org. Production assistance for Florida Frontiers comes from Ben DiBiase and Robert Casanello. The program is edited by John White. Have a great week. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund, the Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, and by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach.